We are in Mark chapter 12, and we're finishing up chapter 12, Mark 12. Uh, we're going to go verses here to start with, verses 12, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Uh, Jesus is on the Temple Mount. Uh, in chapter 13, he's going to be sitting right here on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the Temple Mount with his disciples. Um, we'll get started on chapter 13 tonight, introduce a few things. Next week, we'll be spending time in chapter 13. But here on the Temple Mount at this time, he's been up there, he's been teaching, he's been having conflicts with the religious leaders, the, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Uh, he talked about the scribes. In fact, tonight he's going to address, in this account right here, there are two stories, and I think they go together. They, and I think Mark has put them together uh, because they're, the, if you want to say, two sides of the same coin or they are polar opposites. You're going to have the scribes that are, he is going to reject the scribes. He's going to warn, just like he warned against the, the leaven of the Pharisees up in Galilee. He now comes and he warns against the scribes. You can see in Matthew, uh, a little more aggressive, he's going to be calling them snakes and vipers and really coming after these scribes. Uh, and he's going to say, uh, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, that they devour the homes of widows. And this is what we saw in Isaiah, Micah, Amos, of the elite, the rulers, the religious leaders, or even the leaders of the people who were supposed to be protecting the people would actually become powerful and elite and begin to destroy and consume the people for their own benefits. And he's going to say that the scribes here tonight, he's going to say that they devour the homes of widows and then that story is going to be followed by a widow who's going to come by and drop in two of the smallest coins into the offering. And we'll talk about there. Uh, they're lepta, L-E-P-T-A, one, or lepton, if you're going to be talking about, uh, you know, two or plural, lepta. That is a small coin. I'll show you some here. I've got pictures of them. I'll pass these around and you can see some of them that we actually have. Uh, the widows might. We'll, we'll describe that here in a moment. Um, but this, these two stories are the scribes are being rejected because they are presumptuous and want attention and want people to donate to them and support them. The scribes are not necessarily the wealthy elite, but they were the experts in the law or were supposed to be teaching the law, and they'd have to make a, a presentation or a convincing presentation of themselves to convince people uh, to give them money or to support their, we would say, support their ministry. And the more they could give the facade, and that she's going to address that, the, the flowing robes and the seats in the, in the synagogue, and the more uh, being greeted in the, uh, the marketplaces. If, if you would, were to come, uh, come greet or come face-to-face -face with a scribe who was more skilled in the law of Moses than you were, they had greater knowledge, you would greet them or, you know, you'd show them signs of honor. They would not have to talk to you or recognize you, but you would have to recognize them. And so this, this gave them a status symbol, which then would allow people to give them money. And so they could use their position to manipulate the funding and thus, you know, even manipulate widows to giving them things or having justified them being able to possess them. And then we're going to compare that to a widow who's going to give her last two coins uh, in, in, to the religious system. Uh, and her last two is, in a sense, giving her life. She's going to be fulfilling what Jesus told the rich young man, the rich young ruler, 
uh, what must I do? He says, well, give everything you have and follow me. Well, this widow is going to actually do that here. She's going to give everything away and, you know, in a sense, gave her life. Uh, and so you're going to have a, a widow representing the faithful people in contrast with the mani- manipulative scribes that Jesus is rebuking. And again, this is all this is that is taking place on this Temple Mount um, from Jesus coming in uh, and, and, and being, uh, 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 seeing the, the money changers and turning into a, a den of thieves and then him having to you know, turn the tables over. Then they ask him, by what authority you do this? And they challenge him on every, every level. They try to you know, trick him. Uh, he is going to be rejecting, or we can say sitting as judge on the temple. He's already condemned the, the system. And this last story is almost like, we could say, the final straw. Uh, and from that point on, Jesus in chapter 13 is going to leave the temple mount and never come back. And his conversation there in chapter 13 is going to be the destruction. What we see, the, the destruction layer there uh, from Roman destruction, Jesus is going to talk about it uh, and prophesy it. And that's going to come up several times in the Gospels at different times. And it's going to be something that's going to be brought out at his trial that he says that he is going to destroy the Temple Mount. And that's going to be things that are going to be brought up. So the very fact that Jesus, part of his ministry, was talking about this destruction that was coming in 70 AD uh, is recorded. I mean, people even say the, the historical record that Jesus spoke against the Temple is is laced throughout the Gospels. Uh, in the things he said, in the accusations they made against him. And these things, all that we see, just layer after layer of him providing, at least Mark does here in his gospel, of why this temple is going to be condemned beginning in chapter 13. And so let's begin reading in chapter 12 and just read the account um, <clears throat> of uh, starting in chapter 12, verse 41, and we'll read the rest of that chapter. But we do remember he is on the Temple Mount in, in all of, uh, well, chapter 11 and 12. Chapter 11, you've got the triumphal entry coming into Jerusalem, being welcomed as a king. He goes then up onto the temple and looks around. Nothing happens, you know, kind of anticlimactic. Then the next day in chapter 11, verse 12, which is the Monday of that week, he clears the temple. He also curses the fig tree. We, we know that's a sign representing what's going to take place to the temple. Uh, then in verse 27, Jesus' authority is questioned in chapter 11. We talked about that. He responds in chapter 12, verse 1, with the parable about the tenants, how they will, they're not paying their rent, and so that's gonna, their vineyard is going to be taken from them and given to someone who will produce the fruit and pay the rent. So they're, they're going to lose the vineyard, and the vineyard is going to be given to someone else. All this is setting up. Uh, what's going to take place in chapter 13. Then chapter 12, verse 13, they question him about paying taxes to Caesar and attempt to trick him, make him stumble. And he responds brilliantly and amazes the people with his answer. In fact, he's winning the crowd over during this and isolating himself from the religious leaders. Uh, Sadducees in verse 18 of chapter 12, uh, they ask him about the marriage. It's like they give him that ridiculous example uh, uh, of the brothers that marry the same woman and how there's, there's no resurrection. Jesus says they do not know the scriptures, that they're in error. Then one of the scribes, after they hear Jesus' answer again, one of the scribes apparently comes up 
in uh, chapter 12, verse 28, we saw that last week, and says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers again brilliantly uh, and sums up the law in a typical fashion of the rabbis were asked to sum things up in very simple form. Jesus does a very good job. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then uh, those are the first two. And then who Jesus ends the, the last part here in, in chapter 12, verse 35. He asks them a question and asks them to explain Scripture. And if they could explain that Scripture, when David calls the Lord his son, if they could answer that, they would be able to wrap their mind around the fact that Jesus is the manifestation of the son of David, the Messiah, just as Scripture uh, was able to predict. But they could not explain it. And it says, you know, in a sense, they were amazed, but no one dared ask him any more questions because, you know, he was out of the league. And probably every question they challenged him with when he responded, he looked more brilliant. He looked more in control, looked like he knew more than they knew, that they did not dare challenge him because he would make them look foolish, but he also was gaining a foothold. They had to stop the debate. And that leads us to where we're at tonight, chapter 12, verse 41. It begins in the, I'm reading the NIV, the English Standard Version's on your notes. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, very quickly, he's still on the temple mound, but now he places himself in a position. He sits down and he's looking into the women's court. That's where the, the money was collected. And there's these, what they call uh, chauffeur-shaped, like almost we'd call them trumpet-shaped, so you'd have the narrow part coming up where you'd put your coins down and they'd go down into a larger part in the base. They'd roll down and they would be metal so you could hear the coins going in because Jesus somehow is going to know what this woman has put in. And it could be the conversation she's having with the priest that's looking after those different depositories or receptacles. Or he can tell by the sound of the coins. And people are putting in large amount of coins. You can hear the coins go in, tell by the size of the coins. But he's, he's sitting there. Uh, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting the money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. It would, you could hear it. You could see it. You could even hear conversations, possibly, between the priests that are overseeing it. But a poor widow came in and put in two very small uh, copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. We'll come back and look at that. But you see, that's, that's the part about the widow. But if you go back to uh, um, chapter 12, when he just finishes uh, this discussion about whose son is the Christ, uh, in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. So they're listening to Jesus answer questions, ask questions. And as he taught, verse 38, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. Watch out for the teachers of the law or the scribes. These are people that are going to put themselves into a position. They are not uh, naturally priests. Uh, they are scribes. They are going to be claiming to be experts in the law. And he says, watch out for them. And this is Jesus, again, warning the people about their teachers. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. Now, there's a list of things here. The flowing robes and be greeted in marketplaces. So they're going to have long robes. 
they're going to enjoy greetings, and that greetings is going to be not just, hello, how are you today, but it's going to be some kind of indication that we humble ourselves because you're here, you are smarter, you are a leader, you know more about the Torah than we do, that's what the greeting would include. Uh, greeted in the marketplace, and, they, and have the most important seats in the synagogues, so you're going to have seats in the synagogues, and those seats would be, first of all, they'd be along the walls, the benches along the walls, but the most important ones would be up front behind, like where the speaker would stand, but sitting in front of the, the cabinet or the ark, some of it is called, where the scrolls were kept. So as everybody else would be sitting on the floor, there'd be benches along the side for uh, certain experts or your best to sit on the sides or your best to sit up front right in front of the scrolls right behind the speaker they love to be have these seats in the synagogue and not just be sitting with the the common people um uh, robes greet in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the banquets and the banquets there would be whenever like uh there'd be like the the host of the feast if you're going to have a party you'd invite certain people are invited certain people are not and that's a big deal is one or were you invited to the banquet and then when everybody that's important enough to be invited to the banquet when you get there do you have some special seat of honor uh, we got a special table for you uh you know if you've ever gone to you know many many things but you think about a a, uh, a, a wedding and you have like some kind of reception after the wedding there's going to be the table for the bride and groom and then their groomsmen and, and, and bridesmaids and there's a special table you would not dare just walk up there and sit at that table that's a special place of honor uh, again not that there's anything wrong with it but these social banquets these were indications of social status you know not everyone got invited to these banquets and then when you did get to the banquet did you have a special place well if you're going to invite a scribe the scribe who's going to have special greetings in the marketplace is going to expect to definitely have a special seat uh, away from the other people. So they are building up. This is what Jesus is identifying. He says that these are the people, that the way they dress. And these robes would be long flowing robes uh, in, in a sense that the flowing robe would indicate some kind of royalty that someone would wear you know, as, as a position. Uh, they were trying to imitate priests. A lot of times the priestly garments were like this. And so the scribes are in their own sense trying to imitate the priesthood with their own personal wardrobe. Uh, they have the greetings, the seats in the synagogue, seats at social uh, banquets. Uh, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most most severely. And so they're going to use people like the widows if they can they'll justify i guess you know we think about today uh scammers you know stealing from widows and scamming widows uh these scribes would be almost the equivalent of our modern day scammers sending out junk mail and we could tell you stories and you know stories yourself of of ministries and there's there are very good legitimate ministries around the world and across the nation but some ministries fall right into this or some people fall right into this if they can write the moving manipulative letter and have you somehow give uh, and in in society sometimes widows are in a sense the weakest especially here 
they're destitute depending on their inheritance. It's not like they could go get a job. They're, they're dependent on what they have. But if a scribe could write a letter, make a presentation, or use these things to manipulate, Jesus is the one who says it right here. He says, They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. In other words, they'll go out and, and, and make a lengthy prayer just to impress you. you. Oh, look how righteous, look how close to God they are. Look, look there, they've really got an important ministry or whatever, and it's all, it's all appearance. And then people will give, donate, hand trust them. And uh, he, he says, uh, for, uh, they make lengthy, lengthy prayers, such men will be punished most severely so all of this all of this that these scribes are doing is going to result in uh great you can see in the greek greater punishment or abundant punishment uh now the woman the widow who's going to drop in the coins is she's given more than anyone and is going to be rewarded for her punishment so these people who look like they've got their act together jesus saying don't don't follow this model the model you want to follow is the widow who is is giving uh, all that she can and is getting nothing back but these people are playing the game and getting a lot of things including recognition places of honor uh widows houses they're gaining in this age this world uh, let's just continue reading we'll go back through the notes here and, and look at some details jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put this is where he goes and in the women's court, which is the first court on the outside, and there's receptacles were being put. They'd be brass. They could hear the coins in them. And watch the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. So people are coming by, and we'll look at the, what's, what, what options they had to give money to. Sometimes it was a free will offering. They had certain choice they could give money to. You may have been in, in a church somewhere where you would write on your offering envelope what you wanted the money to go to if you wanted to go to the youth or if you want to go to the pastor's salary or if you want to go to the new the new library you could identify where you wanted the money to go they had something similar to that where you could put your money some of it was required you needed to pay your your temple tax in this uh there'd be priests again ma- watching over these these uh, offerings and advising giving advice it says many rich people threw in large amounts but a poor widow came by and put in two very small copper coins they're the lepta, uh, worth only a fraction of a penny. Now, that's a good way of translating it. It's worth one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was equal to one day's wage. Uh, one of these coins was worth one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So we're talking somewhere between six to eight minutes. That's what a denarius would be worth. Six minutes of, of earnings. And if you figure that out, like uh, you're making $3.50 an hour, it could be worth, you know, uh, not, not like a penny or two pennies. If you're making $3.50 an hour, $3.50 an hour, it'd be worth something like 50 cents. If you're making like $14 an hour, it could be up to $2. So it's, it's basically some loose change. You could, you know, swing through McDonald's and maybe get a sandwich or something. Uh, it's not it's not much but it's not just like what we'd say just two pennies it's a 64th of a denarius so it's 164th 
of an eight-hour day's work if we put it in our terms. So I'd say somewhere between 50 cents to $2, depending on if you're making three fifty dollars or $14 an hour, somewhere in that range. It's, it's, much more, it's much more than two cents or two pennies in our world today. Uh, but it is still the smallest coin, and I'll show you some samples here in a moment. Uh, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. So he's making a proclamation. He's calling them to make an announcement. And then he begins, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, she, all that she had to live on. So uh, he knows, Mark knows, and you know because Mark was probably not there, but he heard from Peter what she'd put in. Uh, they, they may have heard the, the amount of coins going in. They might have heard the discussion. Uh, you, could, you could just say Jesus just knew because he's God what she'd put in there. But there's probably some, there's, it's a public place. So there's a, some kind of indication because a lot of people are coming by and they, they'd make a show of how much money, how many coins they were putting in. And she came by with something very little. And as it goes tinkle, tinkle down in, it's pretty clear how many she put in and, and what size of coin it was that she put in. Um, now, uh, we'll talk about that here in, in, a, in a moment. Let's go back to the notes. Um, and first of all, I think it's intentional that these two stories go together. And that's the first point there. Mark 12, 38 through 44 are two stories that have a contrast. The rich religious crowd will be accused of devouring the homes of widows. And then a poor widow comes by and gives all that she has. And it, it's interesting that the, the, the scribes are accused of devouring widows' homes and then the story that follows is a widow giving all she has into the religious system. And it, you kind of wonder, you know, is that, a, is that a intentional? You, you devour widows' homes. Well, look, here's a widow being devoured right here. So in one sense, she could be seen as a victim. But then on the flip side, she can be seen as a, a hero of faith, knowing what's valuable is to support and give. Uh, but yet in the system she's giving to is, is itself is corrupt. And so there you've got the intention of the heart and the faulty system. And she's going to be rewarded, but this system is going to be taken down, which is what chapter 13 is about. Um, I've got the Greek text in there for you to see the Greek text and all of them. Um, I just read through the notes. I'll read first the English Standard Version. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. Uh, warn against the scribes. The scribes were experts of the law. I've got all that written down right here. Uh, Josephus describes the scribe as one who played the part of an interpreter of the law of Moses. Um, signs, they got them all written down there that, that, that they were warned of. The, they have long robes flowing like the, for ceremonies and festivals, or royalty or like priests. Uh, greetings in the marketplace. The Talmud says that a person must greet one who is greater in knowledge you know, of the Torah. Point C on three on page one, the best seats. I described that for you. Place of honor, banquets. Uh, point four. Now, this is, again, we've already said this, but there's a couple places here that kind of give us support that this is true or verify that Mark is writing in Rome, that this book is being written in Rome uh, during Nero's persecution, probably, you know, 64, 65 A.D., during persecution time, they're being taught that you have to be a servant. You're going to have to suffer. It's going to be a price. And uh, it's written to believers or Christians in Rome. And that is who this is addressed to. 
And then, of course, from there, it's circulated, you know, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are written at different locations for different groups of people. They were then collected. But one of the things you can see that this is possibly, which is from the, the account of Josephus, look at point four on page one. Josephus tells a story of a scoundrel exiled to Rome. So it was be a Jewish individual who was exiled to Rome. Uh, and this, would be, ha, this story would occur before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but Josephus would have heard about it after having arrived and then recorded it. And this, what is, he calls a scoundrel, uh, uh, presented himself as a scribe or an expert in the law. And he convinced certain people that he was an expert and then began to collect money from them. And there was a woman named Fulviel, F-U-L-V-I-A, this is in Josephus, he records this, and she gave him many gifts because he was collecting money to take to the temple in Jerusalem. So you could, he would teach, but he was going to send this gift to the temple, but he wasn't, he was keeping the money. Well, it ended up uh, that the, the, the Rome found out about it from the emperor all the way down to the local street people, everyone knew about what he had done and were outraged at his, his manipulation and his, his thievery. Uh, and so that story was embedded in the Roman culture at the time. And it, it's, does, it, we don't have any direct connection, but that's the facts. Josephus says that was well known in Rome when he got there about a Jewish scoundrel who was collecting money from people, especially a widow, who broke her and took all of her money, and he didn't send it to the temple, he just kept it. Well, then here he comes, and the scribes are put in the same category, so they would have a, a story that was in their immediate memory of what the scribes had done, were doing in Jerusalem, kind of gives them a perspective. Point five on page five, and this is, again, we've seen this on Tuesday nights especially, point five, the Old Testament prophets often rebuked the elite or the leaders, especially the religious leaders, for praying on widows. Here's just four quick examples. Uh, you've got the, uh, the poor and the elite, and the elite are using the poor for their own benefit. It's, it's a sign, uh, we've talked about it for years, of the fourth generation, the four cycles of discipline. Uh, the last one in Proverbs, it talks about those with teeth set like knives to devour the poor and needy from the earth. And when the elite start destroying the poor and needy, uh, abusing them, that, that means the culture is going to be turned over, up, up, overthrown. And that's where we're at right here in Mark. It's, it's, it's the Jewish culture uh, on the second time round, at least, because we had it happen in 586. Now, again, these scribes are, are playing into the culture where they're using their position to devour widows' homes. And here's Isaiah 10, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who enact unjust statutes and issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of fair treatment and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. To make widows their prey and orphans their plunder, what will you do on the day of reckoning when devastation comes from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? And that's Isaiah speaking to the elite of his day. Uh, Amos 2 uh, they trample on the heads of poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. And so these are cultures in Amos, Isaiah's day, that were heading into that fourth cycle and were going to face judgment. Jesus throws that phrase out, devour the houses of widows, which sets these people right in the same category 
behaving just like you'd expect someone to behave in a fourth generation. They're the final generation before judgment comes. Micah 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for a pan, like flesh for a pot. And that is Micah speaking. And then Isaiah three fourteen and 15. The Lord brings this charge against the elders and leaders of his people. You have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And again, those are just four examples of G- of prophets in the old testament saying the same thing similar to what jesus said to this widow meaning again we're setting the stage it's identifying very clearly these people are in the final moments of their culture and in chapter 13 jesus is going to address the destruction of the temple uh we go on to page two just read some more references here and they have the best seats in the synagogue and place of honor at feast who devour widows houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. So on one side, they're dividing houses, but when you look at them, oh, they're really praying and searching and seeking God and talking about how righteous they are. They'll receive the greater condemnation. Jesus isn't buying any of it. He's telling the people, look past the facade. These people are not worth following. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. There's your contrast. Many rich people again. Now, point one on page three, he sat down like a judge. In, in chapter 13, he's going to go sit down on the side of the Mount of Olives. And again, sit like, again, sitting is the position of the teacher at this time, uh, but also sitting was the position of a judge or a ruler. So he's sitting there, in a sense, judging the giving of money. He's going to leave the temple, go sit on the Mount of Olives. And right for, almost from this perspective, we're not sure where he was at on the Mount of Olives, but this would be close to what he'd be looking at right here, either further down the hill or back. He's looking right here and is going to then sit and pronounce judgment on the city, which he's been doing throughout. I mean, it's not like a new revelation. I'll tell you, uh, yeah, I was, I off, off, after reading like uh, uh, Mark 13 and uh, you know, Matthew 14, different place things, or 24, uh, I wanted to come out here and read those verses on the Mount of Olive one day. And so uh, I, I left Jerusalem, I think it was 2007, and I took my Bible, this one right here, and I, I walked up here and found a place on the Mount of Olives and sat down. You know, I was like, you know, how you think that'd be really cool. And I did. I walked, you know, down through here and up the side of the Mount of Olives and sat down and read these chapters on the Mount of Olives and that was it. I mean, I didn't. Exp- I thought maybe it'd be special revelation or some kind of like little fuzzy feeling. It's like it's like I thought oh, that'd be cool. So I went out there and I I did it, and I read them, and then I walked back. And, but anyway, I, I did read. I did sit right here and read these verses, kind of expecting some kind of like okay, now I really understand. But it was reading my NIV on the side of the Mount of Olives. But anyway, I I, I did that. But that's where Jesus is going to be, and it, it's right there. Um, uh, this, this, uh, some points on page three. Um, besides the temple being a place of worship, it was uh, the place where treasuries were brought. It was, there's a lot of money in the temple. In fact, Nero, in fact, if you're looking at that, that Josephus book, uh, it talks about Nero 
began the Jewish wars because he he had ran out of money, and he had, he he wanted the temple, he wanted the treasure in the temple in Jerusalem, and so he kind of sent people there to kind of begin pursuing this, and the Jews aren't going to just hand it over, which is part of this this whole a Jewish war thing. It's going to lead to destruction, but they wanted what was in the temple, and so there's a lot of money coming in. All the money was gathered. This temple in Jerusalem and ancient temples were used to as banks for protecting money, for protecting goods. And not only was it for personal reasons, but of course they had people there that were overseeing it. Um, so I just write down, uh, besides worship, the temple served as the most important depositories of money and the administration of those finances were dispensed from the temple. So once the money, just like always, once the money's there, there's power with the money. So it was ever in charge. In fact, the person that was in charge of the money was second under the high priest. The high priest was number one, and the person that was in charge of kind of like handing out the taxes, who was going to distribute the money, they were like second in, in, in power in the temple. So again, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of money. Uh, point three, the temple treasury of the Jews was located in the court of women, and that would be, you know, you're going to have the, if this, this is not obviously not the temple, but you're going to have the outer court for the priests, then you're going to have the court of men, and then outside of that you're going to have the court of women, and that would be sitting on, on this side. And that next point is interesting. The Mishnah records there were 13 chauffeur chests, uh, like a chauffeur, like a, the ram's horn, or we would say trumpet-shaped receptacles to place coins. The narrow tapered end was up so the coin could fit into the opening, but not a hand. So you could have like an opening for the coin to slide in, and it would roll down into these, these containers. And there were 13 of them. Um, and these are... Uh, the listing of a couple sources identify there's a place to put the new shekels that were due, the old shekels that were due, a place for bird offering. Now, I th- then that they weren't going to shove a bird down in there, but if you wanted to buy a bird, you could put the coin in there and, and purchase a bird. Uh, young birds for the whole offering, if you wanted a young bird. Wood, if you wanted to donate to the wood that was going to be used in the temple, or frankincense, uh, some kind of an incense. And then gold for the mercy seat. If you wanted to donate for the gold on a mercy seat, I, I'm not sure if it needs to be replaced. I mean, I haven't researched this. These are just a list that these were identified. There'd be some kind of title on them. And you'd walk up and with the direction of the priest, are you here to pay your, your shekel tax? Yes, just put it in here. Are you here to, you know, are you, I'd like to donate for the gold on the mercy seat. Well, we'll put it here or however there'd be labels on them. And again, there's 13 different containers. In other words, there's 13 offering plates and you'd get to choose, or you'd be required to put a certain offering in a different plate. And then there were six more for free will offerings. So you could just walk up and just, I suppose people that just wanted to make a donation, uh, they could do that at their six places. Now, we're not sure what this woman, uh, maybe more research could figure it out, but she's going to come up with two small coins. And it's chapter 12, verse 42. She's in the court of the women. Jesus is sitting there. His disciples are around him. And he's watching these people are coming in through the women's court. So again, it's like, well, what's Jesus doing in the women's court? Well, just like the priest could be in the court of the men, and the men could be in the court of women. In fact, you had to walk through the court of women to get to the men's court. So the high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He would have to enter through the women's court, go through the men's court, go past the Levites and the priests working in the altar, and then go into the temple and then back into the most holy place. So it's not unusual. It's not like it's like a women's restroom. It was just that was all the further the women. Just like where's the Gentiles? They could come out here. 
but you still would have to walk through the court of the Gentiles to get to the Jewish section, the court of the women, the court of the men, and then the priests. So again, and as we'd seen, they, the Jews had messed up the court of the Gentiles by turning it into a shopping mall and, to make money. So the fact that Jesus is in the court of the women is not unusual, just that he sat down opposite where they put all the where they all these receptacles he was sitting there watching people donate money he could probably hear conversations because the priest would be talking to people you could hear the metal coins in the metal containers um and a poor widow came and put in two small coins which make a penny now you see that right there and a poor widow came in and put two small coins which make a penny now that's your english standard version translation i would advise you just because this is i I find it interesting uh to look in the greek down there and just we're going to read it literally is and having come one widow poor cast in and that's what it means there's the word you see that word uh el balin that's uh the word below means to throw see below b-a-l-l omicron or o below that's where you get our word ball you throw a ball so that right there's your you can see the the Greek backing for our English word ball. So she cast in, she threw it in, is what that would be saying. Now again, is she taking a jump shot, throwing it across? I think she's just pushing it down in there. But anyway, that's the word. And what she puts in there, it's it's right there. You can see the the Greek word. She puts in a lepta. That is singular. The plural is lepton. But she put in two lepta uh two individual coins now watch this two small lepta lepta two duo see the word duo two lepta which now watch this part which is and again estin is equivalent of is a kadrantas and that is a transliteration of the the roman word for the same equivalent uh, i'm not sure if i've got i've got it written down here somewhere if I turn the page. But notice what he does. He takes the Jewish lepta, two of them, and gives you the Roman equivalent, the coin that they're equal to. Now, why would you take two Jewish coins and then say, well, that equals the same thing as this in Rome? Once again, because he's writing to the people living in Rome. And that's just, you know, that's just an interesting point right there. Um, uh, And as you look down there, some points right there the widow put in two lepta or two lepta which is equivalent of the roman quadrantis in the fact i just said that the widow is doing uh, what the rich young ruler should have done uh on the other side okay there you have the point two the lepta i'm going to spend some time doing this i'm going to show you some things just because i i, I think it's cool uh it's a, it was the smallest coin in circulation in 30 a.d so Two small coins, it's the smallest thing of circulating. And then he got that information about a denarius, turn the page. And now what we have, a lepton is 164th of a denarius, or 68 minutes, and there's the old information about 50 cents, about 50 cents worth. Now, there's two different leptas uh, that were circulating in Jesus' day. And I have samples of both, just because I, I do. Uh, they're a small bronze coin from the time of Jesus called lepton, or a mite, widow's mite. One was equal to the worker's earnings for about six minutes of work, and thus least valuable coin in Israel in the first century. Lepta were first minted by Alexander Janus, 
Now, Alexander Janus was one of the leaders came out, coming out of the Maccabean family, one of the Hasmoneans. He was not a good man, uh, but he was the leader. Uh, and you can study Alexander Janus. But he did mint the first lepta around 80. So we'll just say Alexander Janus around 80 to 76 B.C. He makes the first lepta. And uh, his lepta has an image of an anchor. Again, now this is where you don't care, but I do because I think it's cool. There's an anchor on one side, and you can see it right there, an anchor. And then on the other side, uh, uh, a verse, that's the front, and a wheel on the back, a wheel with eight spokes or a circle, a wheel, with eight uh, rays, rays coming out of a star. And uh, that would be the one that was made from 80 to 76 B.C. If you turned to page 5, I've got a bowl. I'll pass it around right here. See this little bowl? Those are about 15, 20 uh, lepta right here. Uh, they're, They're fragments. They're small. That's why I could pick them up and, and get not, you know, or get them and deal, you know, pay for them because they weren't like mint conditions that belong in the British Museum. Want to see one that's in the British Museum? Go to the bottom of page seven. That one's in the British Museum right there. See that one right there? Now notice that doesn't have the anchor and the wheel. That's got wheat or barley and a uh, palm tree with two dates hanging on it. So that is a different one. That's going to come up. Let me tell you about that. That's going to come up later. But that's in the British Museum. Um, these on page five are right here. Uh, and if you can see on page five, I've got this circled right here. You can see the little the wheels. There's a little dot in the middle, and they're just portions. A little dot in the middle with little rays coming off. And then there's a circle going around it. So it looks like this. There's a circle. There's a dot in the middle, and there's some kind of rays coming off like this. So this circle, that's not the edge of the coin. That's a circle like a wheel, or it's, you know, if those are spokes or stars, but you can see those right there. And then I've got one circled up here on the top left, and that's going to have an anchor on it. So that's, that would be the front side of the coin. The back side is going to have this wheel. And if you look closely, I've got a marker over here. Another has a star marked on one and an anchor, and they're in this bowl right here. I'll, I'll pass those around. In fact, before I do that, I'll do this. Well, what should I do? This would be better too, maybe. Uh, this, I think this one, there's three of them. There's parts of three in here. And uh, you can see the star on one side and uh, an anchor on one side. But here, th- I'll just pass these around and do the best you can. But you can see them. Then you can, I got pictures of them in here also. Um, and when she passed that, I'll give her the, the bucket. And then, that was Alexander Janus. And if you go to, where do I want to go? Yeah, I'm going to go back to page four. Uh, Alexander Janus around 80 to 76 B.C. with the image of an anchor and a wheel. These coins were still in circulation 30 A.D. So it may be from 80 B.C., but in 30 A.D., these coins were still circulating. Uh, how long did they last? Well, they lasted until today. We've still got them. Uh, but also, uh, Marcus Ambivalus, between 9 and 12, between 9 and 12 A.D., so that would be when Jesus was, you know, 
12 to 16 years old, uh, he was the, 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 the governor, the procurator of, uh, of, uh, of Judea, uh, Marcus Ambivalus. Uh, he made coins with the palm tree and an ear of barley on the sides. And that's what you see right here in my hand right there is the palm tree. And I'm going to pass that around here in a moment. And you can see the palm tree and the two dates on it. There's two little balls hanging off the tree. And then it says L and M. That's the inscription. And then on the other one, the other one on this side. So this first one is from 9 to 12 AD. The one on the outside, the right side, is uh, from 80 to 76 BC. And you can see part of the, the, uh, the star. You can see it's not minted in the center. You see it's off-center. You see a star and then the little dots going around. That's that one. And I think that's this one right here. That's in this case. The palm tree, this is from, this was minted in 6 to 9 AD by the procurator. And so you can see on this side, you can see the palm tree. And on the back side, you can see the, the barley leaves. And that is a widow's mite or a lepton, also a pura. Uh, this one, in this case, it's a full one. It goes with this set right here. But this is a full one. And you can see on one side, I think you can see uh, the star and the anchor. The star and the anchor on this one. But again, they're, you know, 2,000 years old. But that's the size of them. That's, you can see the general size of them. And then I'll pass this bowl around. There's a several pieces in here. You can see they're not all there, but you can definitely see this, the star and a couple anchors on them. And, it, you know, I don't want to be, like, bossy or anything, but it'd be really nice if you didn't drop this because there'd be, like, little pieces all over, like a crushed candy bar or something. Uh, but if you do, uh, you can still come back. It's my own fault for passing them around. But th- that's what I've got for uh, lepton, or a lepta, or a lepton. And it's just interesting to know that, that that's the kind of a background. So that one's got a palm tree and then a barley leaf, and the other's going to have the uh, star and the... Uh, uh, the uh, the anchor and those were those were in circulation. We do not know which ones. If it was the the 80 BC or the 9 AD coin she put in, but there was the lepta. And again, you if you were going to work uh, all day, uh, you would get what 64 of those. It'd be like getting paid, you know, in pennies. Except uh, a little bit better because I think pennies are worth less in our monetary. That is again the the widow's mite. If you turn to page 6, you can see at the top of page 6, you can see the, uh, the Marcus Ambivalus, 9 to 12. That's the one you're looking at right there. The one that's being passed around right there, there's the tree. That's mine. I took that picture. And there it is again in a display case I've got downstairs. And then on the top of page 7, I've got the same coins that are in that bowl. Yeah, be careful with my bowl. Uh, the same coins are laying on my desk right there. You can just see it. It's kind of fun because you can see the stars. You see how they're different bits and pieces of them. And then the, well, on page 7, that is uh, the, uh, uh, the 9, BC, 9 AD. Uh, that's in the British Museum. So this one is in the British Museum. It looks very similar to this one right here that you've got in that one case. So that's in the British Museum. That one's right there on the table. Okay, and then just kind of looking at this right here, page 7, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. He calls it the offering box. And again, he's now talking about the, 
if you're giving out of your abundance, it's not costing you anything. Once again, this comes back to uh, Mark's theme of the ideal of a service or being the least or giving all. Uh, and it, it's, the ideal is if you've got, if it's easy for you and you can, do, you can have your own life over here, it's really not service. If you've got your own you know, power over here, you're not released. Or if you've got all this wealth over here, well, look how much I gave. Well, yeah, but look how much you've got. You haven't really served or abundantly. You haven't, you've just kind of played both sides of the fence. And he's talking again. And this is his last, his last teaching. Before we go into the Olivet Discourse, this is his last teaching. Again, kind of summarizing and contrasting this woman of faith and these religious leaders who are really doing destruction and chapter 12 verse 44 for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on so the first story tonight they're all flowing robes a lot of attention and they were going to have abundance of punishment she has nothing. In fact, she's given all. In fact, that these are her last two coins. Uh, the idea, I, if you want to push it, I mean, it doesn't. It's in the text. This would be implicit. I mean, she gave those coins, and now she's destined. She's broke. She's got nothing. Uh, she is going to lose everything, and she is going to have then great reward. And so the contrast there is obvious. Here they've got everything, but they're facing abundant punishment, especially in their deceptive state. She has great reward, but here is a widow that has nothing, no money, and doesn't have enough for her next meal. And that is the contrast here. That's the way he ends this, con- this issue, is you've got, and he warned them, do not be deceived by these people. I mean, they're going, you've got to be able to look past, that just because you're rich doesn't mean you're evil, but this richness and this, this popularity can cover up what's really going on, just like poverty and being destitute and not having a huge influence can really cover up a person of great faith in, in another dimension. Now, with that being said, I'm going to introduce chapter 13. And uh, this becomes confusing uh, for a variety of reasons. But I think, again, I'll teach it. Now, we'll, we'll spend more time in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I'll begin chapter 13. After all this has taken place in chapter 12, all the conflict and Jesus identifying these are the scribes, the religious leaders, don't follow them. Here's this poor widow. She's the hero of the chapter. Again, be careful with the scribes because right before this, a scribe asked him a question and the scribe complimented Jesus. Jesus complimented the scribe and they were mutually in agreement. Uh, so again, not just because you're a scribe or a religious leader doesn't make you bad, bad, but there is a tendency to go after the world. Now, chapter 13, verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, now, and this is huge, we'll bring this up several more times probably, uh, this is the last time he's in the temple. We started the week with him arriving at the temple, he's been there all week, and now he's leaving the temple. This is so much like ex- uh, Ezekiel, when the glory of the Lord moved towards the threshold of the temple, it moved from the, the, the holy place, moved this way to the threshold of the temple where Ezekiel saw it, and then the cherubim lifted it up, and the glory of the Lord went out and stopped on the Mount of Olives before it apparently heads to Babylon where the Jews are going to be. But anyway, it stopped on the Mount of Olives. Well, Jesus is, if it's intentional on Jesus' part, 
uh, I would think it is. And Mark recording it, would, are the Romans going to pick this up? I mean, if you're a Jew, you'd, you'd, you'd know because it's the book of Ezekiel. But Jesus is going to do the same thing. And he's going to walk out this gate right here. Now, again, that, the gate that he walks out, the eastern gate that he walked out, is probably right down here. It's probably underneath there. It needs to be excavated. They, did, they excavated the Damascus gate up here, and they found the first century gate. Uh, this was built in 1535 by Solomon the Great. Uh, was, uh, yeah, blocked shut, you know, several times. A variety of stories there. But there is actually something underneath there. So he didn't walk out those doors, okay? Those were built later. But this location of the gate is underneath here. Uh, so that he would have walked out here and then comes up the Mount of Olives, and that's where we're at. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. We're talking, we'll spend more time next week talking about those stones and how magnificent it was, just to get some perspective. But one I want to point out right here, uh, on a casual reading of this, you may think, well, no wonder. These, these guys are from Galilee. They've been fishing their whole life, and the first day they're in Jerusalem, it's like, whoa, they're in Disneyland. Isn't this a cool place? Or they've gone to the big city, and they've seen the Sears Tower. It's like, this is really a big building. That, 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 would, that would fly if you're ignorant of the Scriptures. But these people have, they're Jews. They've come and gone out of Jerusalem. This is not the first time they've seen the temple. Jesus has been on the Temple Mount potentially uh, at least three times for the Passover, maybe a fourth time. So it's not like these are, are, are you know, kids from the country that came to the city. You could, you, that might be true. I mean, that's one way of reading it. But if this is, they've been here all week. So, I mean, maybe that's your first impression, but they've been here all week. Uh, they've looked at it. They've, Jesus walked around. I think they're familiar with it. Does this mean something other? Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, what potentially this could be, is this could be they're still thinking he's going to be the king. He's going to be the deliverer of the Jews. He is the Messiah. <clears throat> That's what Palm Sunday was all about. Just a few, just last week in the text, they're in Jericho wanting to sit on his right and on his left. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And they're, they're marching on Jerusalem thinking there's going to be a big overflow. So, and he's been keep playing this down. He's not confronting it. He's saying, no, you're going to have to be a servant. And this, the great stones, uh, this was a great building. This was uh, the pride of, of the Jews. The people, they say, if you've never seen this, you've never seen a great building. And in the ancient world, this was one of the great buildings. Herod spent, uh, they're still finishing it in, in 66 AD when the Jewish war. So they're still working on it. And they've been working on it since, you know, what, 18 BC or so. So, this idea of the great stones, the great building, how magnificent it could be. Possibly, think about this, they're talking more about nationalism. How, look, you can't, you, can't be, you can't be trashing this place. I mean, this, look at this. This is, this is going to leave a mark. This, the world is going to come here. There, we will not be forgotten. This place, Rome may be here today, but Rome won't be here forever. And... You or us, the Jews, whoever, this is going to leave a mark. And Jesus is like, uh, no, 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 you're missing my whole point. There's not going to be one stone left. Of, there's nothing going to be left of this. This is nothing. And then you go back to his parable. The stone the builders rejected is going to be the cornerstone or the capstone. Uh, what, what stone? 
It's like we've already got a building. No, you're rejecting the cornerstone. What cornerstone? The cornerstone of the new temple that's going to replace this site right here, which is, if that's the correct interpretation, you can decide. But nonetheless, that's exactly what's going to happen. This temple is going to be torn down. It doesn't matter how great the stones are. It's not standing. And the cornerstone of the future temple has just been rejected by everyone on there. The crowds are amazed. But by the end of the week, they're going to be crucifying him. Uh, and, and the cornerstone is rejected. And so with that in mind, and also, it's, again, I read this in a commentary. I don't know. Uh, look in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, see? Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So he's got this view. This view hasn't changed. I mean, it looks different, but you, the heights, we've got to assume they're similar. Uh, opposite the temple. Look, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? Notice their, their name. You've got your typical Peter, James, and John, but throws in Andrew. So you've got your two brothers, two sets of brothers. These are the two groups of fishermen that were called. But the point I'm making here is their names are mentioned very clearly. Someone remembers who was there asking this question. But when you go back, it says, chapter 13, verse 1, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. This is something we need to respect, we need to use. It's like trying to, it's like, this is, now again, and there's no one, who was it? I mean, surely someone remembers. I mean, it's right here. Who said this? Now again, this is, this is now speculation. It is worth considering. This sounds like someone that is a very uh, materialistic, whose name is going to be scratched. It's like we're not going to rec- remember it. Again, you don't need to accept that. But this would be something Judas, who's, who's, who's wanting to push Jesus, wanting to become you know, this leadership, wanting to go this direction, uh, he's going to say, hey, look at this place. Uh, by the end of the week, he's going to be the one who wants to uh, sell the perfume and, and have money uh, instead of just dumping it on Jesus' feet. And he's, Jesus rebuked him for, for that. Uh, so again, that, that doesn't say anything like that. But this, this disciple, whoever says this, whoever's drawing attention to these buildings, their name is not mentioned. Uh, again, and they're saying some massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, that is the case right here. Now, again, this is a t- touchy stuff right here. Oh, shoot. The buildings, these buildings, there's not, be not, not one stone left. One, not one stone left. Okay, so this right here, as I've said, and you can look in the Jerusalem book, this southern wall, you, I've got lines drawn on here showing you the original Herodian stones. These stones down here were there in Jesus' day. Uh, they got knocked over, and then they've rebuilt them up during the years. Actually, the Muslims built it back up because the Christians never messed with it. They just liked it being destroyed, uh, apparently. But you can still see Herodian stones, and you can see it in the Jerusalem book very clearly. So not every stone of the temple complex was turned over, but it is a bare rock. There's nothing on the surface left. The temple, the buildings, uh, the royal stoa over here, Solomon's colonnade that goes all the way around, all that is gone. So in a sense, Jesus did that Jesus was accurate. Some would say, well, 
we're talking about the temple. He's talking about all the Herodian stones. And then there's, there's, there's some goofy teaching out there. And I'll say it's goofy, uh, but you may want to consider it. Is they say, no, 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 this was not the Temple Mount. This was a, built by the Romans as a fortress. And the actual temple is over by the city of David. And there's, you can't find it because there's not one stone left upon another. And they got a whole theory on that. And some, many people have asked me, go, well, isn't the temple down over the city of David, which is just right here? And it's like, well, I think we've got enough evidence that this was the actual location. But it is a stumbling stone when it's like, when you say, well, and I, it bothered me. The, the Western Wall, you know, he went there for, a, for a, this, this is the only part of Herod's temple that was left. And it's like, well, I thought it was total t- destroyed. And then you get there, and everybody's talking about it being the only part of Herod's temple left, and it's, it's the retaining wall, as we talked about before. Here's the temple sitting on the Temple Mount. The Western Wall is this section right here. But these Herodian stones go all the way down here. You can see them. I got tons of pictures here. You can see them all the way along this row. You can see them all, all the way along here, up here. You can see them all the way along the western wall. You can see the, so this western wall is just right there. It's just a close place to where the temple was. The closest place, you got to go in the western wall temples, or western wall tunnels, and right here, there's a gate. Was it Warren's Gate? Uh, I have to think, remember. That's the closest place you, a Jew can get, or anyone can get, well, a Jew, because Muslims can go inside the Dome of the Rock, uh, can get to the most holy place. So you got to go here to be as close as you can to where the holy place was. Um, but not one stone left upon another. I think we're talking about the complex or just the general idea that it's, it's destroyed, even though there's stones still sta- standing there. Now, what begins to happen here is, uh, at verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John Andrew asked him privately, tell us about when these things will happen and what will be the sign that you are about to, that they are about to be fulfilled. And what ends up happening here, and I, I'm going to say this, and then we're, I, I kind of got it broken down there a little bit on your, the title there uh, of the references, is there's two conversations taking place here. And you don't have to accept this, but you've got to make your way through this somehow. Is the question is the temple destruction? Uh, when will it be taking place, and what's it going to look like? And that's going to be seventy A.D. And then there's going to be the coming of Christ, uh, with the Parousia, the coming of the Messiah, and that is going to be the end times. We'll just say end. And within here, these questions are going to be answered. They're not, you can't put them together. And again, I'm not saying I've got this right. I've taught this many times, uh, and I'm always making adjustments as I, as I read through this. But what you've got here, I would say, if you look on the top of your page right there, Mark 13, 1 through 13, go down to verse 13. Uh, all that first part, chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives. Now, he's going to say that like four times. The one of the keys here is do not be deceived, and you do not know. I mean, that, that's, I mean, the more I look, look at this, the more I look back at all the teaching I've done on timelines and all this detail, at the end of the story, you don't know. Yeah, but look at all the work I've done. Right. And you missed the verse that says, you don't know. It's like, yo, I don't want to read that verse. I want to read about the parts I know. It's like, well, the point is you can't put it together the right way. Uh, and again, that's, that's humbling as a teacher. Like, well, I'm not smart enough. No, it's not possible. It's not revealed. It's beyond, just like Paul went to the third heaven and saw things that he can't express. Well, did you see him? I was looking at him. Well, tell us about him. Uh, I can't. 
And here's, here's Jesus' words on this. Well, explain it to us. Well, you can read it as well as I can. I, I, I don't know. But clearly, I would say verse 5 down through verse 13 is, or yeah, verse 13 is going to be answering this question. We got, you cannot tell, you're going to make a mistake if you just rush right into the tribulation. Because that, no one's talking about the tribulation. They're talking about when is, you, we're saying, look at these beautiful buildings. Jesus, there's not going to be one, you missed the whole point. I was here for a week, they won't not, want nothing to do with me. This is all coming down. I'm the cornerstone for the new temple. Let's leave. It's like, but, but it's beautiful. They said, well, when is this going to happen? So he's going to have to answer, when does this take place? But they're also looking up for the Messiah, and they think somehow this is going to tie into the end. Now, again, there's this long period of time between these two events, but he's going to then begin in verse 14. Uh, if you look right here, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, and then Mark must have added, let the reader understand. Meaning, I'm writing this down, you need to focus on this. That we're not talking about, now again, I'm not sure what he means by, you know, the reader understand. But right there in verse 14, we switch to here. And that 14 is going to continue uh, uh, down, down to what I've got right here, 27. And then at, a, at verse 26, that at that time men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now if you're a preterist, you're going to read this whole thing. It's got to take place in 70 AD. So you've got to somehow have the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory in 70 AD. And if you want to do that, you can. But you're, you're shoving this into 70 AD just like sometimes I have taken 70 AD and tried to shove it into the end times. It, it's, they're, they're two different times. Uh, but then in verse 28, it goes back to here. So if, you, if you'd finish verse 27, And he will send his angels to gather the, his elect from the four winds, and the ends of the earth to the, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens, that ends this part. And now he's going to go back to here and give you an example. Now le- learn a lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, what was talking earlier in the chapter, uh, then you'll know that it is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You guys are going to see those verses, uh, chapter 1 through 13. You're going to see that. And then, that's the end of 70 AD, and then he goes on, goes back to verse 35. Therefore... Now we go back to the end times. Keep, now this is advice for you and me. After this happens, what do we do? Well, therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Meaning, he's basically telling you when 70 AD is going to happen. When you see Jerusalem surrounded, <laughs> there it is. But after that, okay, now you don't know. Whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, he, that, that's not talking about the Romans, that's talking about Jesus returning. Uh, doesn't want to find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And so I think we can, and I've begun doing it, I will do a better job next week, divide this, and you can do the same thing in Matthew and Luke, divide it into, is he talking about 70 AD, or is he talking about the end? And there's some clues within there, more than I've given you, that you can see. And one of the phrases is going to be, these things. He says, these things. When you see these things, these are the things you're going to, but he's also going to have disclaimers. When you see this, 
and you see this, it's nothing. He's going to have this. When you see nation rising against nation, and you see this, and, and famines, the end is not yet. It's like, yeah, but this looks catastrophic. Yes, it does. But that's not the end. So he's, he's going to give you, when you see these things, this is it. Then he's always going to say, when you see these things, it's nothing. It, that, that's world history. That's the way the world looks everywhere, every day, to somebody's perspective. Though the sky is falling. Not today, not in West Des Moines, but somewhere in the world the sky is falling. Maybe Taiwan. I don't know. Okay. I'll pray, and, uh, and we're done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into your word. We ask that we would handle it diligently, that it would affect our lives, not just the things we know and understand, but the way we live and the way we think and apply your truth to our lives. Again, we do thank you for the chance to know Jesus Christ, to have the Holy Spirit, and have fellowship with other believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.